0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: This is The Roy Green Show
2: podcast.
0: I have a tremendous amount of respect for my guest, Tim Danson. He's, as you no doubt by now know, the lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families, Doug and Donna and Debbie, Doug and Donna French and Debbie Mahaffey. And uh, I've known Tim for a long, long time, and we... uh, I guess we were kind of partners on the Christopher Stevenson case. Tim, but uh, you've taken such wonderful care of crime victims' families for such a long period of time. And I know the French and Mahaffey families look to you for their assurance that the very best is going to be dragged out of a legal system that is quite often reluctant to offer its best. And uh, good to talk to you again. It's been a while. Where do we begin? Do we begin with Homolka and Val volunteering at her children's school? I feel sorry for those kids. Or do we begin with uh, Bernardo being eligible for a parole hearing?
3: Well, in one sense, they're they're really linked, because at the time that uh, I'm dealing with the Frenches and the Mahaffey's getting ready for um, Paul Bernardo's parole hearing, which tentatively is targeted for the end of August, whether it proceeds on that day, I don't know, because there was another date in in March that we were to proceed on, and he he put it off. Um, and so, he, if you could if you could imagine the juxtaposition with the families of preparing victim impact statements and dealing with some of the legal issues, which I'll I'll bring to your attention in a moment for Bernardo, and then at the same time, there's these stories of Carla Homoka you know, living a relatively normal life and volunteering at a you know, at the school and being in the proximity of other children, and it 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 really, as Doug put it, it's like uh, you know a kick in the gut. Uh, very very difficult to um, to come to grips with that uh, when you know that um, Carla Homoka should have been in the prisoners' box with Paul Bernardo, and she too should be serving a life sentence uh, rather than uh, having a a normal life and and volunteering at a at a school. Um, you know, this is an individual who, um, uh, who got away with murder. And so when I hear people, and like the leader of the NDP party, Mr. Mulcair, say that, uh, you know, she's paid her debt to society and, and she should be forgiven and given a second chance, uh, my first response is, is that Carla Homolka did not pay a debt to society. What she did through deceit and deception and manipulation is that she was able to orchestrate a plea resolution... And there were strict conditions to that uh, plea resolution. That is, that she'd be completely honest and that there'd be no material omissions. And if she breached that, the plea bargain would be off and she would be in the witness, it would be in the prisoner's box with Paul Bernardo. And as you know, she did breach uh, her plea resolution. When the videotapes were found, um, uh, we discovered that there was a, a further victim, which is known as Jane Doe, who I also represented. And that was a material. Reach of the plea resolution and unfortunately the powers to be uh, chose not to uh, pull the deal and uh and 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 kind of backed her on on that particular argument but the fact of the matter is when you put all that together um she didn't pay her debt to society she got away with murder and um with respect to uh, uh you know forgiveness I, I say well first of all for someone who unfortunately has seen the videotapes as much as i have and know exactly what she did. And then 12 years later, in uh, Joliet, when we were, just before she was released, and we were trying to uh, um, uh, impose post-conditions, sentence conditions on her under the 810 of the criminal code, uh, which we were successful with, but it was reversed on appeal, unfortunately, and that's why she has no conditions on her whatsoever. But it was during that period of time when the court was considering, uh, you know, whether she was a risk to society, that we should have post-sentence conditions on her, that she chose to stare me down. I mean, that's that's her. That's that's the kind of person she is, and it was um, pretty shocking at the time. But more shocking for me because we were just a few feet from each other, and this was a pretty intense stare down, which I certainly wasn't going to break when I realized she had the audacity to do it. So we are looking at at the whites of each other's eyes, as the expression goes, and this is what I saw: the same evilness uh, and emptiness. In her eyes uh, is exactly what you see in the videotapes you know 12 you know years earlier and so she hadn't changed at all i mean she is a psychopath and once a psychopath always a psychopath and we know there's no cure for psychopathy now she's certainly a complicated individual uh but we don't know exactly what her triggers may be but there is no doubt in my mind that she represents a serious threat to public safety and if i was a parent at that school and had my children being supervised or being in close proximity to her, I would be alarmed. And, but on the forgiveness point, I say this. First of all, I could never forgive someone who did the unspeakable crimes that she did. And as I say, I do not believe that she's rehabilitated. And given certain circumstances, I think she would do it again. But truly, you have to have um, true and genuine remorse. has to be at least a prerequisite for forgiveness. And Carla Homolka has none. She hasn't demonstrated a scintilla of remorse or contrition. And as a psychopath, she's not capable of it. So I took uh, I take a very different view than Mr. Mulcair.
0: It, it's it's sad almost that uh, Tom Mulcair would say what he did. It's sad to uh, recognize that there are people in this country who will forgive evil and will say things like, well, we took her freedom away. I've heard that as well. And uh, and and, and it's, it's awful that in that school, uh, Tim, there was one parent, I believe, who specifically challenged the school administration for allowing Homolka to volunteer at the school, and he's the one who was thrown out of school by the administration. Not her, but the parent who found it absolutely uh, abominable that she would be there. He's the one who was expelled from the school.
3: Now, fortunately, uh, I understand from media reports that uh, as a result of the public's outrage um, and and other parents' outrage, uh, they've walked it back and 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 have made it clear that they're not going to allow her to, uh, you know, volunteer and supervise kids. Right, but
0: that was but their that was their immediate remi- that was their immediate response was to exactly. reward her and to punish him.
3: Yeah, I know it's it's uh, it's 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 very very disturbing. It is. So,
0: so, Tim, you were about to explain something to us about legalities, I, I think, that had yeah, to do with her.
3: Well, with, well, with, the, with the parole hearing coming up, um, it's important uh, for people to understand that when you hit, actually, I think it's when you hit 23 years, uh, you're eligible for day parole, and then when you hit 25 years, um, it's uh, full parole. So we're, we're at the uh, day parole stage right now. And, um, and you, you go before the parole board, and there's normal you know, considerations that the parole board looks at for normal parole. But remember, Paul Bernardo has also been designated a dangerous offender, and that is a, a, a very high level, extreme level of dangerousness. That's uh, um, uh, significant. It's a, it's a very specific uh, designation, and it's my opinion that before Paul Bernardo is a, it, the parole board considers him for parole in the in the traditional sense, they must first deal with his dangerous offender designation, and that Paul Bernardo. Um, uh, would have to come forward with very compelling evidence to displace the previous finding of, of being a dangerous offender. Now, people who have a different view than mine say that um, you know, that's, that's just academic, Tim, because uh, the parole board is going to consider both dangerous offender and the regular parole. But I, I think in principle there's a big distinction, and we ought not to conflate the two. And so, therefore, I think before Paul Bernardo's even considered at all for for parole, legally, uh, we should be dealing with his dangerous offender designation. And I also feel that uh, the evidence that Paul Bernardo puts forward uh, to tell the parole board that he's no longer a dangerous offender and that he's eligible for parole should be open to public scrutiny. Um, uh, It's remarkable to me that Paul Bernardo and other people convicted of first-degree murder who are asking for a public remedy to be reintegrated back into society are able to rely on privacy legislation uh, to prevent the public from seeing that evidence. Um, And yet, in my view, it really is a public remedy, and it's... uh, and parole hearings and dangerous offender applications before the parole board as well um, are, are public. So I think that uh, the public has a right to know, the public has a right to know all the evidence that he's relying upon, and I think we de- need to deal with his dangerous offender designations first before we consider anything else.
0: You know, I remember uh, a number of years ago, I-, I was contacted by a gentleman who identified himself as a guard at Kingston Prison, and uh, he wouldn't give me too much information because he just didn't want to be identified uh, specifically that I'd know his name and, and his you know, his history there. But he was a guard. And uh, he suggested to me that Bernardo was having conjugal visits. And so we called Correctional Service Canada. And what you just said was underscored by, by what we heard in response from Correctional Service Canada. When I asked whether or not Bernardo was having conjugal visits, they said Mr. Bernardo, Mr. Bernardo, has his rights to privacy like any other Canadian citizen, and we will not tell you what's going on in his life.
3: Yeah, the, the way they use, in my opinion, um, uh, you know, the, the Corrections Canada and the Parole Board rely upon uh, privacy legislation not to disclose all kinds of information. And I cannot believe that they really care about the likes of uh, Paul Bernardo uh, or Clifford Olson. Uh, I believe that they hide behind the privacy legislation so they themselves cannot be uh, held to account. And it really makes no sense because the parole system. Is simply uh, an extension of the criminal justice system, and it's an extension of the sentence, uh, which, as we all know, all of that is public and transparent. Um, we're actually going to be joining. Um, uh, there's an existing case that I'm, I, I have before the Federal Court of Canada uh, dealing with uh, the, the family of police constable Michael Sweet. He was murdered by Craig Monroe 35 years right. ago. Right. I
0: spoke with his widow not long ago.
3: Yeah. And and so we're actually in federal court to challenge these privacy legislations, because even under the privacy legislation, there is a legal balance between the privacy of the offender, Mm -hmm. in these cases, uh, murderers, and in Paul Bernardo's case, he's in a dimension all to himself, and uh, and the public interest. And I, I don't understand how... Uh, the, the interests of an individual murderer who seems to have more rights after he's been convicted than he did when he had the presumption of innocence, right. trumps the, the rights of victims and the public. And so I, I, I just wanted to bring to okay. attention that we actually have that in federal court. Tim,
0: I, I, I'm sorry, but I have to, have to jump in because we have a satellite break. It's going to cut me off whether I want it to or not. <laughs> Good to talk to you again. It's been a while. And thanks so much for what you do for everybody in this country, particularly for Doug and Donna and Debbie. Thank you very much. Talk again. Bye bye. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. You know that over the last couple of months, we've been talking about chronic pain patients in this country between a million and a million and a half, and how they are being systematically victimized by a government and a healthcare system that doesn't care about them how statistics are being massaged to make it look as though the opioid crisis involves chronic pain patients, when in fact, it involves generic drug addicts. I would argue that most, if not all, but most, if not all, chronic pain patients who are on opioids are using them responsibly and providing for themselves, with the help of their doctors, enough pain relief that they can actually live their lives and not live in fundamental terror and contemplate or commit suicide. So I've been challenging the federal health minister, Jane Philpott, to come on this program, and I will give her credit. About an hour and a half, two hours ago, she sat down for an interview with me. Have a listen to how it went. Dr. Philpott, why is all the talk from governments about painkillers instead of pain? You do know that People who take painkillers, people who take opioids, do it just to make life tolerable.
1: Well, I
4: think that's a fantastic point, and uh, I think you're absolutely right that uh, uh, it's a fair point that the conversation needs to be around the pain and recognizing that when people do take uh, substances that uh, are used for controlling pain, it's because they have pain, sometimes uh, physical, sometimes psychological, but... Uh, The pain is uh, certainly should be a central theme to this conversation.
0: So then why is all the talk about the painkillers instead of the pain?
4: Well, I, you know, I think it depends who you talk to. I I, I think this is an issue that has a whole range of perspectives on it and and views. And I certainly uh, try to encourage people to uh, not oversimplify it and not uh, not see that uh, there's any one single story to uh, the issue of the fact that, Uh, We have uh, an overdose uh, epidemic in this country, but uh, you're absolutely right that part of the conversation has to be around the fact that uh, people uh, have pain and that they, if if they do, that they deserve to get care for that pain.
0: Minister, when the uh, death by opioid overdose numbers are announced, do these numbers refer to non-chronic pain drug addicts using unregulated drugs purchased from criminal drug dealers or do the numbers of deaths by opioid refer exclusively to deaths of chronic pain patients taking their opioid prescription medications as directed by a doctor?
4: Well, that is a fantastic question because, in fact, that is one of the challenges that we're facing. And uh, one of my own frustrations with uh, with the issue is that we haven't managed to separate the varying scenarios well in the numbers. And it actually uh, varies somewhat from province to province in terms of how those numbers are reported. So we have a lot of work to do in that area. One thing that I've done is asked the Public Health Agency of Canada to do an epidemiological analysis of the deaths over the last uh, year or so and look at those very questions because I think uh, we have to understand that, in fact, there are, uh, as I say, a whole bunch of individual stories. And sometimes people are dying because they've bought... Illicit drugs in the street that are laced with very strong opioids Uh, and then there are also people who uh, you know uh, sometimes elderly patients who have uh, taken a a bit more of a medication than they ought to have or had a drug interaction with a, a pain medication that they were taking under the prescription or under the direction of a physician so we need to break that down to get a better understanding.
0: What percentage of chronic pain patients who are prescribed opioids to make their lives tolerable become addicted? And I think by this time we deserve a hard number.
4: Well, I'm afraid that we don't have a hard number on that at this point, and uh, this is one of the reasons why there's a lot more work that needs to be done in research and um, clarifying definitions of what dependence is because uh, we know that sometimes people are physically dependent that can be different from being psychologically dependent um but we do need to recognize that while uh, opioids are an incredibly important class of medications and absolutely need to be available uh for appropriate use uh particularly with people uh with uh for example, cancer-related pain and in, in appropriate circumstances, chronic pain, we have to recognize that they do have addictive potential and that there are harm, potential harms associated with them, and so they need to be used uh, appropriately, and we need to make sure that uh, we enjoy their benefits uh, without undue, uh, undue harm being um, done to, to Canadians who uh, take these medications.
0: What are pain patients addicted to?
4: Uh, Can you want to know what particular? Yeah, I'd like to.
0: (laughs) You tell you tell me, please, and tell my listeners, and which includes chronic pain patients, one of whom will be joining me shortly. What are pain patients addicted to?
4: Well, I think you are asking a question that is trying to uh, to describe the fact that there's a a single or simple story, and I think that there. Uh, I, I don't want to oversimplify. Uh,
0: well, Minister, questions. with due with, with respect, I don't think you've answered any of my questions yet.
4: Well, feel free to ask me another question then, and I'll see if I
0: can satisfy you. Um, I'll tell you what pain patients are addicted to. They're addicted to getting rid of their pain. And if they take opioids and it works for them, what's the problem? And if they take the opioids for the rest of their lives, what's the problem?
4: Well, I absolutely agree with you that every person who has a health condition deserves to get access to appropriate care for that condition. And so when people do have chronic pain, they absolutely deserve care. They deserve uh, a, a proper assessment and an awareness of the whole range of treatments that should be available to people with chronic pain and in appropriate circumstances. That may include opioids, but it has to be done uh, with a recognition of the fact that there are potential harms and one cannot deny the fact that uh, we are dealing with circumstances where people do die and they do also have other harms associated with uh, the use of opioids, which can sometimes cause uh, delirium and confusion if used inappropriately. So, uh, you know, people need to be treated on a, thing, on a case-by-case basis by uh, a well-informed uh, care provider who will make sure that they, they get benefit of the treatments that they're receiving and that we avoid any unnecessary harms.
0: And they are being treated by healthcare care professionals, by their family doctors, who with the patient come up with a treatment regimen. You know this better than I. You're a doctor. They come mm-hmm. up with a treatment regimen that works for them. And if that happens to be opioids, then why, for goodness sake, not leave them alone? Why are doctors suddenly, and I've talked to doctors who've told me this, uh, they don't want their names publicized because, frankly, they're afraid. Why are doctors suddenly finding themselves overruled and feel that if they have a patient, they're providing more than 90 milligrams of opioids, too, on a daily basis, they're going to be in trouble. And why does a pain doctor tell me if I have more than six patients who I prescribe more than 90 milligrams to, which they require, I'm going to be on a watch list. And Roy, frankly, I can't afford that because it took me 12 years to get my medical license, and I can't afford to lose it, and I feel threatened by the government. I feel threatened by this agenda, this anti-opioid agenda. This is what doctors have told me, Dr. Philpot. I'm not making it up.
4: Okay, well, I I certainly acknowledge that you may be told that, and obviously, um, you know, doctors and prescribers uh, need to follow uh, both evidence-based information, and they have responsibility to regulatory colleges that supervise them, but I think... Uh, decisions need to be made on a case-by-case individual basis and there is no medication that a doctor would prescribe on an ongoing basis that they wouldn't periodically review. So whether it's a a medication for diabetes or medication for a low thyroid disorder. One of the realities is that doctors from time to time need to review with their patients whether or not they should stay on the... Yeah, fair enough.
0: Fair (laughs) enough. Occasionally review. I understand that. I get that. I'm a heart patient. I understand that periodically my drugs are reviewed, but they're not cut back. They're not arbitrarily cut back, which is the case with um, non-cancer patients who have chronic pain in this country, could be a million to a million and a half people, many of whom have told me, at least the ones I've talked to, that they contemplate suicide, suicide because their pain is not tolerable, and suicide because they're, frankly, they're afraid. The first line of the Hippocratic Oath is, first, do no harm. Exactly. I, I, my, my sense is that these patients are being done harm and that your con- governments and, and maybe regulatory agencies as well are conflating um, the, the, the chronic pain patients with the drug addict and intentionally. I believe that the, the, there is an anti-opioid um, agenda underway and it's being fostered and fed by government attitudes and the only people who are going to get hurt, Minister, are the patients. And if they commit suicide... How would you feel how would you feel as a doctor if you knew that patients had taken their own lives because they couldn't live with the level of pain they had on a daily basis, and that level of pain was there because their opioids had been arbitrarily taken away from them? As a physician, how would that make you feel?
4: Well, I will reiterate again that one of our goals is to make sure, as you said, that uh, we avoid harms uh, in and but you're assist- not
0: avoiding harm. We're creating harm.
4: All I am doing is trying to recognize the fact that there is harm being done to people in this country associated with overdoses. But you're absolutely right. I will heartily agree with you that one needs to be extremely careful uh, in, for example, the um, following of the guidelines. And the guidelines that have recently come out are exactly that they are not directives. They are guidelines to uh, support prescribers, and they need to be uh, they need to be used very carefully. And yeah. I heartily agree with you that nobody who is on a regular dose of opioids should be precipitously or. Uh, thoughtlessly uh, ha- have their dose adjusted. It needs to. Be why asked. should
0: it be adjusted at all? If it's working, and if the person has a quality of life they don't have otherwise, why does it have to be adjusted at all? Shouldn't, your, fo- shouldn't your focus be the drug okay. addict? Shouldn't your focus be the drug addict who buys on street corners? And didn't you tell the CBC that you saw some value in providing drug addicts with prescription heroin? so we look after the the drug addict by providing prescription heroin but we let the chronic pain patient go to hades that's the that's the sense that i get and that's the sense they get that's their frustration and minister frankly that is their fear and you know that as well as i do
4: well um, you do. let me just go back you haven't given me an opportunity to answer a couple of the questions that you brought up there I did. and you have raised the fact that perhaps their dose doesn't need to be changed and it's between a I didn't
0: say that. I said they're arbitrarily being changed. One well, of the the the, the, the woman I'm going to be talking to after his minister, the woman I'm going to be talking to after I talk to you, Her family doctor prescribed opioids for her. There's a doctor she doesn't even know who's in Toronto. Her family doctor is conferring with, and that doctor in Toronto provided instructions to her family doctor to cut her opioids in half. He's never seen her. He's never talked to her. He's never treated her. He makes a long-distance phone call, essentially gives a long-distance phone call order to the family doctor, cut her off. She's now terrified. How is that practicing medicine? How is that acting responsibly? How is that providing Canadians with their Charter of Rights rights?
4: How? How? Well, If you'll allow me to answer, I will tell you that, of course, uh, it's not my role to, uh, to uh, give comment on any specific case. Uh, but I, you have raised some very good points. That people with pain need to get appropriate care. They need to be in the hands of prescribers and providers who are sensitive to their needs and who will address them appropriately and make sure that no harm is done. You know, I was a doctor. Um, I still am, but I'm not practicing now. And I can tell you that these are conversations that I would have. And I you know, again, I, I don't think it's fair to necessarily uh, paint all uh, patients nor all uh, care providers with a single brush. You've raised an incredibly important point. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, you know, going forward on a case by case basis, every patient deserves to have their health conditions treated. And often I can tell you that patients don't want to stay on any particular medication any longer than necessary. And that's not Just pain medications, but uh, with any medication, it needs to be reviewed periodically, and uh, you're you're raising some very important points.
0: Minister, I won't ask you to comment on this. May I read you just a few lines from, from an email I received? I know you're short on time. I won't take very much time. This is from a patient. I've been a chronic pain patient since 2008. I'm 38 years old now. I lost my career, my partner, and my family because of the severe pain and stigma of requiring opioids. It happened during surgery to fix an injury that was caused while I was working. Like most pain patients, I tried everything else to get better before resorting to opioids. However, CRPS, um, chronic regional pain syndrome, also known as RSD or reflex sympathetic dystrophy, is notoriously hard to treat if you're lucky enough to have a doctor who knows what it is. I've tried physical therapy, psychological therapy, antidepressants, anticonvulsants, blood pressure medications, trigger point injections, nerve blocks, lidocaine infusions, ketamine infusions. I've attended three different living with chronic pain classes put on through various hospitals. After all that, I did a trial of opioid medications. I obtained some relief getting my pain levels under control and allowing me to live life. After two years of consistent doses and a spreading of my disease, I required a stronger dose. The doctor I had at that time decided I would do better without opioids all. Within six months, I was bedridden and suicidal. I knew I was due to see yet another pain specialist, so I decided I would wait to see him, then make the decision whether or not I would kill myself.
4: I won't ask you to to comment. comment Well, Well, first of all, obviously, I would have tremendous sympathy for this patient, and I hope that this person um, has been able to get the care that they need. And again, I would say it's not my role to uh, weigh in on an opinion on on a particular clinical case, but I hope that every person who was in a similar situation would find uh, uh, a well-informed care provider who would make sure that they got the care they need. Minister, your
0: responsibility is to do more than hope. Your responsibility as the National Health Minister is to provide. I'll just read you the last line from that email. I'm terrified of losing my medication again. If it happens, I have two choices, suicide or street drugs. Without medication, my life is not worth living. 38-year-old woman. Minister, consider the patients. Remember, you're a doctor. If you were not a health minister, if you were a doctor, I would hope you would have a diametrically opposed view to the one you're putting forward now, which honestly sounds to me like government agenda and little else with a million to a million and a half people in this country being sacrificed.
4: Well, I, I'm not sure that I can say anything that will entirely satisfy you. I hope that you have understood that I have tried to make it clear that every patient deserves appropriate care. And I have not said at any point today or any other day that they're, uh, uh, that a patient under the direction of a, of a well-informed care provider, um, it may be entirely appropriate for somebody to stay on a an opioid for a long-term basis that needs to be uh, decision needs to be taken uh, on a case-by-case basis and absolutely for many patients that is exactly what they need uh, and if that's the case and that decision has been made and the patient is, uh, has a good quality of life and their care provider believes that the benefits of any medication outweigh uh, the harms of that medication, then they deserve to have that medication.
0: Then, Minister, you need to put that into action starting tomorrow because it's not happening today. But I thank you very much for the time.
4: Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: So there's the interview with the Federal Minister of Health. And at the very end, it sounded to me like the minister had agreed it should be up to the patient and his or her physician to make the decision. And that should carry the day. I would like to, because I'm going to play this. I've always said don't say to me today what you don't want me to play back for you tomorrow. Uh, I would suggest that the position that Dr. Philpot put forward, that it should be up to the patient and the health care provider, become stone-in-stone, cast-in-stone policy so that Catherine, my guest now, no longer has to fear whether or not she'll have the adequate pain meds, no longer will be going to a hospital screaming for help, but they slam the door on the room they put her in so that other people can't hear her, and her father begs for assistance because he probably thought, oh, she's just another addict. She's a pain patient in massive pain. And then they show up with a l- tiny little dosage which not going to do the job Catherine, as you listen to the minister good to talk to you again what did uh, how satisfied were you with, with what what she said
2: oh well roy i mean i i was not satisfied at all i i don't believe that she answered any questions directly um and uh you know sure right at the end she said it's between it should be between the patient and the doctor well you go tell that to my doctor, who's, you know, low down on the food chain as far as doctors go, but he's he's fantastic. He's my doctor. And is he going to take my word for it or, you know, the minister on the radio? No, not until it's actually made law will he be able to comfortably prescribe me
0: You're right. prescriptions. You're right. You're you know? right. But we do have the minister saying... Now this is where I'd have, like the rest of the country's media to pick up on this. I, 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 they they need to listen. They need to know that it's not you, it's not chronic pain patients who are the issue. You're not the you're not the, not the focus of these s- statistics that are trotted out and the and the opioid crisis. It's the drug addicts who are the who are creating the crisis, and it's the chronic pain patient who's paying the price. Yes.
2: and and, and the fact that the government cannot differen- differentiate between those two groups, but then they go ahead and blindly pass this law without knowing that, uh, it, it's just unfathomable, really.
0: What was your week like?
2: Uh, you know, Roy, I actually had a horrible week, to be honest with you. Um, this week, uh, I gained 20 pounds of, of fluid. Um, I'm puffed out everywhere. I need to self-check myself in to the hospital. Um, I've been in pain all week, um, you know, at about a five. So I spent a good part of my day sleeping a lot. Um, I believe one time you had tried to reach me Mm -hmm. and I couldn't talk to you for two hours because I, I needed to settle myself in to be able to speak to you. I remember that. Yeah. So no, I did not have a good week at all.
0: And and the, the, the doctor in Toronto, who I mentioned to the minister, who is interjecting himself into your health care and essentially shoving, shoving aside your own doctor and making uh, demands like your breakthrough meds be taken away from you, breakthrough meds being if the pain spikes, they get long-term meds. And if the pain spikes before those long-term meds can take effect... You get a, a small dose of a, of an efficient breakthrough opioid that is short-acting or short-lasting but, but acts quickly. So those, those were taken away from you, right?
2: That is correct. Had I have access to those, because the way pain goes is it, it's almost like a, I think of it as a monster, really. But it starts out small, and if you can't eradicate it immediately, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So, but it, if you have to wait too long to to kill the monster, you have to use triple the dose. I'm I'm just making that up, uh, you know. But so had I had have access to a very small dose of the breakthrough meds, I could have stopped this whole cycle that occurred this week.
0: Are you afraid?
2: Absolutely. I missed work appointments. Everything. You know. I. I. I Am I fooling myself that I can actually maintain a a job, you know?
0: And you're a very successful person.
2: Well, I try, but it's my my hands are tied a lot.
0: And your is your fear now that this lab this walking lab coat in Toronto, is going to cut your medication even further and just shove your family physician aside even more?
2: Well, I mean, the way I understand it is now I'm below the threshold, so you know. Uh, unless the government decides to lower that threshold. I, you know, I really don't know. But sure, am I afraid? Absolutely. Nobody cares. They're all looking at the numbers.
0: And the numbers are manipulated. The numbers are meant they're manipulated in such a way that you are become the focus when you're not the focus at all.
2: Oh, and sure. And I think when I was explaining the math to you, because you said, wait a second, Catherine, that's not right. And I realized what my doctor had said. They've arbitrarily put four times amount of strength on these breakthrough meds. In actuality, they're only two milligrams. But they're saying, no, th- their value is worth eight. So who came up with that number?
0: Well, that's like saying we'll put two liters of gasoline in your car, but, but you, you pretend it's eight. How fast are you going to run out of gas?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it just seems that there's no, no foresight in this whatsoever. No care for the patient, you know, except for the gentleman, the, the kind doctor, who has to break the news to me. Who I could have sworn had a tear in his eye. And I'm not trying to make it sound dramatic, but he knows how I feel. He's seen me, and and but his hands are tied.
0: Yeah. You and I will uh, we'll talk in the next couple of days and we'll stay in touch. We'll have you back on the program with uh, some other uh, chronic pain patients. and um, and we'll push this further because you deserve a lot better than you're getting. No way should you or any other chronic pain patient in this country be forced, forced to experience horrific pain levels simply because of an agenda of some kind that governments may have. Catherine, thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Roy. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Alicia Raimondo is a young Canadian named one of 2012 Faces of Mental Illness. She's spoken at the Clinton Global Initiative as well as the United Nations International Youth Day at the UN headquarters in New York City. She has been described as a mental health superhero, for sharing her experiences dealing with depression, anxiety, and attempted suicide. She's the author of Red Carnation, a book that's being used in grade eight classrooms across Canada, and Alicia is going public with her battle with an eating disorder, and any time you go public with something that is intensely personal, that is a commitment, and that's a tremendous amount of personal courage, and it motivates other people to feel, hey, if... That person can do it, and that person can face up to it. Maybe I can, too. Alicia, it's a pleasure to speak with you. You, too. So when you hear someone say you're a mental health superhero, which means that you've helped, which means that you've made an impression, which means that you have motivated somebody to to face challenges, must make you feel really good to know That you did that at a time in your life when you were actually, yourself were quite vulnerable.
1: For sure. I have unfortunately lost a number of friends to suicide. I've lost 14 friends. And it really inspired me to be honest with my own struggles, be honest with my, at first, anxiety and depression. But then what was the hardest thing, to be honest with, was my binge eating. Because there was so much stigma and so much lack of understanding around that. And for me, I just really want to live out loud and show other people, especially young people, that um, what they're living with is real and valid and that someone else has gone through it and has gotten through it and there's hope. And so from losing 14 friends to suicide, I've received almost 200 messages from people saying that I helped them turn away from suicide and ask for help. And I think my latest journey of being honest with my binge eating disorder uh, has had such huge impact. So many people didn't know that this was a disorder and that it made so much sense for their life and have since been able to get help. And I'm really proud of that.
0: And eating disorders are a particular issue with the younger people. I'm not saying only younger people, Mm -hmm. but it's a particular issue with younger people because self-image is so critically important.
1: I think a lot of people live their whole life with, issues with eating. and They just don't recognize that it's a disordered issue of no. eating. Of course, young people, because they're still trying to figure out who they are, but I've received messages from people in their 60s and their 70s saying that they had lived with an eating disorder their whole life, but they never heard a story that resonated with them that showed them that there was something to what they were going through and that there was help out there and, and relief out there.
0: So would you describe first, please, what your particular eating disorder, uh, man- how it manifests itself. How does binge eating uh, manifest itself? And I found it interesting when I was reading a piece about you mm-hmm. that here you'd been open with about your life to so many people. You've made such an impact uh, internationally. Young people look to you and consider you to be a mental health hero, and, and yet here you were in engaging in, in this eat, binge eating, and you didn't really quite understand or hadn't connected that this was – your problem now and 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 now that you've been dubbed a mental health superhero and appropriately so how do you tell people that i have this problem right
1: so when i actually realized that i had binge eating disorder i was already being very honest with my anxiety and depression and sharing stories and it was just people dealt with binge eating disorder so differently when i would try to talk to my doctor and tell them the I'm just out of control of my eating when when a binge eating episode is coming on, I order food from five different places so they're never delivered by the same people and I eat way too much and I'm not in control and then I feel so much shame and then I then that causes me to binge again another day feeling that I'm out of control. And all of these doctors and people who I knew understood anxiety and depression just told me that I didn't have willpower that it that it was a weakness, that I just needed to be stronger and fight the cravings. And they really just didn't understand what I was going through. And that's why it's so important for me to raise it uh, awareness about eating binge eating disorder because so few doctors even understand it. And I was living this double life where I was on stage and talking about being honest, but still because my uh, opportunities to reach out about binge eating had gone so badly that I wasn't being honest. And it wasn't until uh, World Eating Disorder Week uh, two years ago that I decided to open up and say, hey, I was portraying this perfect and recovered person, but I'm still dealing with this binge eating disorder. And it meant it to just show people that even though they put me on this pedestal and say that I'm so much better and so much recovered, that I was still struggling and that the, i was still going through hard things and i just really wanted to live more honestly with people follow me online or people who know me in my communities that that this is a really hard thing and even though i had struggled and overcome so much that i was still stuck and still struggling with this something that even going back to the age of six i could see myself remember myself binge eating
0: alicia raymondo is my guest at alicia is her website she's a young canadian and uh, as I've been telling you, named uh, one of 2012's Faces of Mental Illness. And uh, she spoke at the Clinton Global Initiative. Her book, Red Carnation*, which um, uh, deals with the uh, depression, anxiety, and attempted suicide. The book is used in grade 8 classrooms across this country. That's uh, that's an amazing honor, you know. You're, so, Alicia, your, your message to young people... Is so respected that your book is being taught, uh, being made sort of mandatory in grade eight classrooms across Canada. Let me ask you: Does it take a, a a younger person to be able to communicate properly with younger people? If 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 I, for example, as a baby boomer, were to try to hold forth uh, about binge eating and eating disorders, would young people tune me out?
1: I I think it depends on one thing really is that young people really just like when people are transparent when people are honest with them right you know sometimes it does take looking like them to get past that trust barrier but I honestly think what they need from people around them is for them to be vulnerable and them to be honest and and know and just say you know I struggled with this and I don't have all the answers but I know that it's really hard and you you
0: you were very open about your uh, about your issues uh, about mm -hmm. depression Anxiety, attempted suicide. You tell us, fourteen of your friends took their lives. That's a, that's an awful situation to sort of uh, to bear uh, as you go through your young years, knowing fourteen of your friends have done that. And binge eating can, and eating disorders can, in fact, and do claim lives. Um, mm-hmm. Young people. I had a, a teenager. I sound like an old fart, but I had a teenager in the te- in the studio. A teenager. That's when I was a kid. We called him teenagers. Um, young girl who was um, she was um, anorexic, mm-hmm. and she was down to I think fifty or fifty-five pounds. And she, she stood in the studio; she wouldn't sit down. She had the, um, maybe her folks are listening. Uh, her young her younger brother made me aware of her. Said please talk to my sister. And she stood in the studio, and she wouldn't sit down. She had to keep moving because it, she was burning up calories. She felt like she needed to lose weight. She understood that she wasn't heavy. She understood that she had a a mental health issue, but she didn't know what to do about it. So how do you approach the issue of, of your binge eating? What do you do, and what's the advice to people who would identify with it?
1: So what has been really helpful to me at first was finding other people living with binge eating disorder. So finding other communities, other whether they're online or in person, and being able to talk through what I was going through was hugely validating. And then from there, finding a healthcare professional that understands the illness and that can listen to me with empathy and support and get me uh, diagnosed with this so that I could have access to treatment programs. And treatment programs that are really helpful for me have been like uh, one-on-one counseling, therapy, and groups with other people with binge eating disorder have been hum- like just hugely helpful to me. I don't know if I would say that I have recovered from it completely, but I've made great strides just being able to realize it's real and be with other people who want to talk to me about it.
0: So what but is it? What was it? What is it that would have caused you to engage in binge eating? It's not something you would have planned all day, is it?
1: I would have planned it. I usually plan it um, a couple hours beforehand, okay. and I justify it in my mind why it's an okay thing to do. Okay, um, and it sometimes it's after a really stressful day, um, but it's also happened over uh, after days that were really happy. And I find for me the only pattern I can find is intense emotion whether it's extreme happiness or extreme sadness, and then I engage in a binge eating. For me, though, it's also very cyclical. If I've binged recently, it makes it more likely that I'll binge again.
0: And what's the, we have about a minute left here, what is the, the, what is the first rule, uh, rules sound so definitive, uh, what's the first initiative you undertook and that you still employ now that helps you deal with the urge to binge eat?
1: The first and the most helpful thing is just educating people around me around what it is and what helps me not engage in it and what helps support me after I have binge eating, not to shame me, not to tell me I have no willpower, but to sit with me and understand what I'm going through and give me a hug and support me if I tell you that I'm going to binge and in come approach it with love and support instead of shaming and guilting.
0: Yeah, Is it a mental health issue?
1: I would say absolutely. I would say all eating disorders are mental health issues and are made worse with any comorbid mental health issues you might have with it.
0: And the person who is a binge eater, if they think about it, they know.
1: I, I think that they know or they they know that they've had a very unhealthy relationship with food their whole life. And So I would say reach out and ask and talk to someone okay. about what you're going through.
0: I hope you'll come back. I'd like to have you back on the show.
1: I would love to be back.
0: Thanks for the time today.
1: All right. Have a great
0: day. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
1: For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does.